Welcome everyone to the Medspiration Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nav, and this is episode number 21 with Dr. Andrew Huberman. So I'm a neuroscientist, I'm meaning I'm a professor of neurobiology and ophthalmology, Stanford School of Medicine. So I run a laboratory. I teach a little bit. I teach neuroanatomy to medical students, but mainly my lab does research. So I've got students and postdocs, and we're trying to figure out the answers to two problems. The first problem is how to regenerate the damaged nervous system, in particular, the connections between the eye and the brain to restore vision to the blind. So that's a big mission of ours. And to prevent vision loss in people that are losing their vision. And the other thing that we're doing is we're focusing a lot on stress and other states of mind. So I'm obsessed with the idea that all our states of mind come from the brain and the body. And we're trying to figure out what happens in the brain and body when we're stressed and how to control it. What happens in the brain and body when we are creative and how to control it. And essentially for all states of mind. But rather than try and tackle the really high level stuff like flow and states of awe, we're really focused on these states of stress and things like focus and the ability to think clearly and do certain things athletically or cognitively, because first of all, there's a lot of suffering. There are a lot of people out there that are suffering from an inability to control their states of mind. And also there's great potential for people who aren't suffering to be able to create and perform and do better things once we can understand how those states come about. Neuroplasticity is the brain and nervous system's ability to change in response to experience. The brain is unique and the nervous system is unique among all the organs in the body because it can actually direct its own changes, which is incredible. Humans, unlike other species, can do this throughout the lifespan. Other species have neuroplasticity just early in life. Children and teens and young adults, their brain is far more plastic than people say age 30, 40, 50, 80, 90. But even people 30, 40, 50, 80, 90 can modify their brain circuitry. It just requires a couple specific steps that one has to take and we can discuss those. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you're having a blessed day. Thank you so much for pressing play and tuning into the Medspiration Podcast, where our goal is to help you bridge the gap between medical science and your mind, body, and spirit. In this episode, Dr. Huberman discusses the nervous system, how we can rewire our brain and calibrate it towards higher performance, the growth mindset and neuroplasticity, how to train your nervous system and use breathing tools to adjust your internal state, the trauma brain, EMDR, and addiction. This episode is jam-packed with practical real-time tools that explains the science behind successful strategies for life change. I can't even lie. These are the type of conversations that I live for, and it is truly what science and innovation are all about. I'm so excited to get your feedback on this one, fam. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Make sure you tell every single person that you know and love about this show because it would mean the world to our team and it would help us medspire more individuals like yourself. And no matter where you are in the world, you can tag us on Instagram and we'll start a conversation with you. Tag us in your stories, share us in your posts, and we'll make sure we reach out. And now, without further ado, let the medspiration begin. Dr. Andrew Huberman, welcome to the Medspiration Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, today we have one of my favorite Medspirations joining us. He's a neuroscientist and a tenured professor at the Department of Neurobiology at Stanford University School of Medicine. Uh, Dr. Huberman, 
I want to thank you for your time today. And for those of our audience out there that may not be familiar with you, can you please introduce yourself? Sure. Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. My name is Andrew Huberman. I'm a professor of neurobiology and ophthalmology at Stanford School of Medicine. And my professional life is centered on trying to understand how the brain works, how it wires up during development, and how it can be modified by experience, what we call neuroplasticity. Before we do get into it, I want to know, uh, what got you into the position you're in? What brought your interest to neuroscience? And how did you become the director of a lab at Stanford at such a young age? So there are two paths to uh, where I'm at now. Um, so my dad is a scientist. So I was born into a family where my dad actually came to the U.S. from Argentina on a naval scholarship to do physics. So he wasn't in the Navy, but he had a naval scholarship to do physics. And he met my mom. And they moved to the West Coast and had my sister and I. And so I grew up in a house where there was a lot of discussion about science, not necessarily scientific um, teachings, but, uh, you know, we had graduate students over for barbecues and I understood what a graduate student was. Um, and we would spend summers at a center for physics in Colorado where there were all these luminaries of the last century physics. So Richard Feynman, Murray Gilman. Um, Peter Kaus, like these guys were, were, and it was mostly guys at that time, these guys were like the royalty of physics. And so I grew up hearing about these physics people. And, um, and you know, it was interesting because in my home, there wasn't much discussion about sports. You know, every kid, young, young kid in the U.S. is like, wants their parents are into like, you know, and they watch football or basketball and none of that. But I could tell you what meal was served at the Nobel Prize ceremony I knew what a publication was. I knew what a revision was. I, you know, I, I knew what the top journals in physics were. And so I grew up in this kind of odd environment where I was exposed to a lot of the culture of academics and science. So I grew up near Stanford University. A lot of the kids that I went to school with, their parents were professors or engineers. Um, and then during high school from about age 14 until about age 18 or 19, to be honest, I didn't um, take school very seriously. Uh, uh, you know, I'm not shy about the fact that, you know, my, my parents split up. It was a very high conflict situation. There wasn't a lot of structure and I really didn't go to school much. I was skateboarding. I got really involved in skateboarding, punk rock music community. I was kind of a wild, let's take away the kind of, I was a wild youth. Um, and really I can credit my high school girlfriend at the, towards the end of high school. Um, I, got a girlfriend. She went off to college at UC Santa Barbara and I followed her there. At that point, she was pretty much like my family because of my family structure was really kind of disrupted. So I followed her. I just wanted to be near her. So I applied and I don't know how, but somehow I got in. <laughs> um, at the time I was considering becoming a firefighter. Um, I really, I'd done some work with the fire service and I was really, I liked the camaraderie. I loved physical work. I'm I'm kind of a physical guy. I like, I like um, movement and I like lifting heavy objects for fun. It just, I don't know, it, it sets off my dopamine. So I thought I was going to be a firefighter, but they let me in. And after a year, I basically um, came pretty close to flunking out. Um, I just couldn't keep up and I didn't have the, the background. So I left, went to community college for two quarters, Foothill College. And I just made the decision that I was going to fill in these gaps because I actually got pretty scared that yeah. at 19, you know, I, I didn't, I could, I couldn't keep up in these college classes. 
I wasn't good at any sport to become a professional athlete. So I realized that academics were going to be my path, but I didn't know what academics. So for anyone listening, I didn't know it was going to be science. I, but I made the decision to just work as hard as I could in my courses so that I had options. And eventually I went back to Santa Barbara because I didn't actually flunk out or get kicked out. I was left on a leave of absence. I went back and by that time I was really on fire for academics. I had done two solid quarters in community college. I had really got my life in order. And when I went back, I lived in a small studio apartment and all I did for the next two years was study, work out and sleep. And I suppose I ate a little bit too. And my girlfriend at the time, she she said, you know, like I created a monster. That's what she used to say. Cause I was just so, you know, I was really, it was really out of fear. I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. And, and I realized that academics were the path. And eventually I came across a professor who taught neuroscience, what then was called uh, biological behavior, but it was or biology of behavior, but it was really neuroscience. And I started working in his lab, studying thermal regulation. I just fell in love with it. And I thought, wow, you know, this is really weird. You know, here I wanted to just avoid science and anything related to science, because that was my upbringing. I had some resentments about that. But I realized this stuff is great. And I loved the information. I devoured my textbooks. Um, and I just fell in love with the idea of asking questions and trying to solve those questions and realizing that you know, I was on the front edge of something. I, I won't lie. I had to work very, very hard. I mean, that there was so much desperation for being able to get good at something and have a profession and a life. And so then eventually I went to graduate school uh, to make a long story short. I, I went to graduate school, got a first I got a master's in neuroendocrinology at um, the degree was in something different, but it was really about neuroendocrinology at UC Berkeley. And then I went up to um, UC Davis, did my Ph.D., in neuroscience. And then I did my postdoc at Stanford with a guy named Ben Barris, who for the medical students or future medical students or physicians, they should know who Ben is. Ben um, unfortunately passed away from pancreatic cancer at the end of 2017, but he was the first transgendered member of the National Academy of Sciences. I only met him as a male, um, but a very interesting guy. He had an identical twin sister, but he lived his whole life feeling as if his mother was treated with a miscarriage, anti-miscarriage drug, and he thinks it might have androgenized his brain in some way. And so he trans transitioned to Ben before I met him, and he was just an amazing guy. And he was a neurologist who, who really made the study of glia, the other major cell type in the brain, as you know, but most people don't know, you have neurons, you have glia, and glia make up about 90% of the cells in the brain, and the Ben, I went to Ben's lab to become a postdoc, and that's where I think my love of science really like got cemented in me because I adored working for Ben. It was a big lab. It was very competitive. Stanford, for me, was kind of the pinnacle. I'd grown up near it, but I hadn't done very well in school. And so the question for me was, could I do well at a place like Stanford? And I thought, you know, I had this kind of secret shame and maybe a little bit of a like an axe to grind like oh you know maybe I, I wasn't part of the pedigree you know in the lab there were these people that went to yale and princeton and stanford here i was i was like okay barely finished high school <laughs> you know uh santa barbara is a good school but it's you know it's not in the ivy league and i had these these and i thought you know what do i have in my favor i thought you know there are some very hard working very smart people at 
all universities, but I was surrounded by some of the smartest and hardest working ones there. And I thought, you know, no one can outwork me. And exactly. I just was like, I was like, and literally, you know, and it, and it was a little bit of a sicko mentality. I don't know that it's that healthy, but I, I decided that I would just work until I couldn't anymore. And one of the good things, I'll just say briefly, one of the good things about having a physical practice, playing a sport or getting into working out or running or, or swimming or whatever it is, is that eventually you realize that the only thing that makes you quit is your mind. That exactly. unless it's lifting heavy objects where there's a physical limit, you quit because you tell yourself you have to quit. And so I just worked like a maniac and it worked out. And at that point I set down my competitive edge and just, I really decided I just wanted to go deeper and deeper into the questions that I love. I was a professor, got hired as a professor at UC San Diego. I was an assistant professor there and at the Salk Institute. And then eventually Stanford called and they said, my lab was doing very well. We were well-funded, publishing well, um, thanks to having great people in the lab mainly. And then Stanford said, hey, you know, we'd like to recruit you here um, before you get promoted at San Diego. What would it take? And I thought, well, uh, you know, I mean, uh, Stanford's a great place. Like, sure. And so I went through the process of, um, you know, interviewing and I've had my lab now for 10 years. Uh, I've got I, I'm blessed with amazing postdocs and students and and staff and administrators who do a ton of the work too. you know, right down to the people who who empty our trash in the evening. Like Stanford is just a place of extremely high integrity where people are committed to the future. I'm not saying this as like a promotional thing. Like the, the thing I love about Stanford is that, yes, we have great reverence for the science and physicians of the past who've done incredible things, but there's a real eye toward the future and what we're doing, how it extends out of the university and into society. And so it's, I feel I'm so honored to be there and so, yeah, that's my story in a, in a little mini or mid-sized nutshell. Um, you know, there are a lot of twists and turns along the way, um, a lot of good stuff, a lot of hard stuff. Um, you know, science is not an easy career. Um, yeah. You have to raise a lot of money. You have to work very hard. And at the end of the day, I still feel like it's one of the best decisions I ever made. And I recommend anyone who has a curious mind and a love of science or medicine to just, you know, if nothing else, my story indicates that you don't have to come from the pedigree, um, but you do have to work very, very yeah. hard and very consistently. So there's no there's there's no free lunch in 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 this business for sure. Wow. Yeah, it's cool to hear your story. I was always wondering, um, kind of what made the man who who is Dr. Huberman today. <laughs> uh, and it's funny, we kind of have a pretty similar story there because, you know, I kind of took a, an unorthodox approach to becoming a physician. And uh, a lot of it kind of had to do with when I was in high school and college, like my priorities, like getting good grades wasn't like my main priority. It was just experiences, you know, and I, I'm actually grateful. I look back at it and I had such a, a wide array of experiences that eventually when I locked in and I realized what I wanted, uh, I came in with a fresh mind and I was willing to outwork anybody, you know, and that, so that plays a huge role. And this kind of enters into our conversation today. Um, I want to talk nervous system. So before we get into the hard science, uh, I just want to hear your definition of the nervous system. Yeah, so the nervous system um, includes two major branches, the, what we call the central nervous system, which is the brain and spinal cord. 
everything in the brain and spinal cord, and the peripheral nervous system, which is everything else. But I think the important thing to understand conceptually about the nervous system is that it links the brain with the body and the body and all its organs with the brain. You know, I think gone are the days where we get heavy into discussions about brain versus mind. That's more of a philosophical discussion. And I think the brain body distinction is becoming more and more um, blurry. And so when I think about the nervous system, I think about what its job is. And it's worth thinking about sensation, which is, you know, you have all these receptors in your eye and in your skin and in your ear and in your nose and on your tongue, and they're sensing physical events in the world all the time. You don't even have to think about it subconscious. And then your perception is the extent to which any one or several of those sensations become conscious. So for instance, a moment ago, you weren't thinking about your contact with the seat that you're sitting in, but if I tell you about it, now you feel that pressure. So that's perception, that's your perceptual spotlight moving to the sensation of touch or pressure. Then we have feelings, which are emotions, and those involve both the brain and body. And feelings and emotions were designed to move our body and our states of mind toward particular uh, end goals. And we can talk more about that. And then there are thoughts, which is this, you know, incredible and kind of um, somewhat mysterious sense of what our brain is doing all the time, which is trying to create meaning of around our perceptions. It involves memory as well. And then behaviors. You know, the nervous system is responsible for everything from me picking up my mug of coffee to getting up out of my chair. So reflexive behaviors as well as learned behaviors, as well as very deliberate, careful behaviors. You know, I see a, a picture of, you know, uh, Jordan behind you, you know, when he's setting up for a free throw, it's almost reflexive after the whatever 10, 20, 30, 100,000 hours of practice. But um, the nervous system controls the learning of that and the reflexive um, aspect of that. The one thing I really think is important for people to understand about how the nervous system works, because it takes all that language and makes it a little bit more um, conceptually compact, is to say that there's interoception. So paying attention to how we feel on the inside, we have sensory endings on our gut to tell you if it's full or empty. We've got all this stuff happening inside. That's interoception is your perception of what's happening inside the confines of your skin. We have exteroception, which is our perception of what's happening in the outside world. And those two are bridged with certain sets of neurons and things in the under, you know, in the nervous system. So the nervous system's main job is to take my inner world and match it to the the demands of the outside world. I'll give one brief example, maybe two. When you lie down to go to sleep at night and you fall asleep, you are purely in relation to yourself. You're not in relation to anything outside you. There's no exteroception whatsoever. When you are running for a plane that you're about to catch and you're not yet in touch with the fact that your heart is beating hard and you're, you know, and you're just running, running and you're trying to don't shut the door, don't shut the door and you're running, you're in almost pure exteroception. And, but most of the time we're sort of between the two kind of going back and forth. So yeah, it, I think that again, without going into a lecture, I think hopefully that arms people with a sense of what the nervous system is and what it does. And of course it learns and it can change and we can talk about all that if you like, but that's the main job of the nervous system. Okay, so what I get from that is sensation, perception, feelings, thoughts, and actions. That's kind of uh, an overview. And you, you mentioned a few cool things. Uh, 
Michael Jordan uh, and him instinctually shooting that free throw. Uh, we had Tim Grover, who was Michael Jordan's trainer, on this podcast, and he, he kind of talked about how, uh, well, repetition, uh, what repetition can do and how it can lead to Michael Jordan closing his eyes and hitting the free throw in a game. Um, so that's something we're going to be getting into, just the repetition aspect. And I love that you use interoception and uh, exteroception just because, um, from my understanding at least, like, our sensory awareness of our body, uh, the more and more we can become aware of it, we can become aware of the cycles, sleep-wake cycle, our heart rhythms, uh, and kind of learn to regulate our body. So the more we actually delve deeper into our body's awareness, uh, the more we can start making the right tweaks for our health. Sure. Um, a few months ago, I did a community pediatrics rotation, uh, which basically I had to go to a high school. I was speaking to the high school students, and I had to work at a mobile clinic there. And I did a, a presentation for all the AP science students, um, and I had the honor of picking any subject in medicine. So I was taking this in, and I was like, man, when I was in high school, what did I really want to hear? You know, Because uh, I was a nerd, but I, I wasn't like – you know, I didn't want to just hear hard science. I want to make it applicable to my life, you know, and at the time they were learning about genetics. So I decided to focus the presentation on the science of the growth mindset, epigenetics and the microbiome. And the intention of this presentation was to educate them on the importance of diet, exercise and most importantly, their mindset. And I wanted to help them attach a sense of reward with the effort process that they're going to be dealing with because they're the future of our country, you know, and man, these kids, they ask more questions than their teachers expected. And, uh, each presentation I did, it went past the bell. So, you know, it was kind of cool because I realized even young people are very, very interested in, in neuroscience and, and how mentality kind of becomes and how it actually materializes in the physical plane. Um, and there's something you talk about, self-directed adaptive plasticity. I wanted to really delve into that. What is self-directed adaptive plasticity and how does the growth mindset play a role in that? Yeah, thanks for asking. Great that you did that with them. I think, you know, first of all, growth mindset is not my creation. Growth mindset is the um, discovery of, of Carol Dweck, a colleague of mine in the psychology department at Stanford. Um, this wonderful discovery that some subset of kids w enjoyed doing uh, math problems that they knew they couldn't get correct. And it was clear that there was some reward mechanism in their brain attached to effort itself, not to getting the right answer. And as a consequence, those kids, of course, perform quite well in math and, and other subjects as well, because they are wired for effort. And uh, that helps uh, big time. So she's done a lot of, um, well, she has done the seminal work on unpacking what that really is at a psychological level, um, how it can be implemented and so forth. Just to back up a little bit. So neuroplasticity is the brain and nervous system's ability to change in response to experience. The brain is unique and the nervous system is unique among all the organs in the body because it can actually direct its own changes, which is incredible. Humans, unlike other species, can do this throughout the lifespan. Other species have neuroplasticity just early in life. Children and teens and young adults, their brain is far more plastic than people say age 30, 40, 50, 80, 90. But even people 30, 40, 50, 80, 90 can modify their brain circuitry. It just requires a couple specific steps that one has to take and we can discuss those. Self-directed adaptive plasticity, and this it's a real mouthful, sorry, is a, a, a name that I coined to separate it out from other forms of plasticity. 
So there's plasticity, like if I have a head injury, uh, the plasticity is not adaptive. There's plasticity, but it's not adaptive. Neurons will change their connections in response to experience, but not in the way we want. There's The reason I put self-directed, and I just didn't call it adaptive plasticity, is because I really want to drive home the idea and the, the truth, really, that the only way we can get neuroplasticity, these changes to our brain as adults, is if we direct them for ourselves. I think now with all the challenges in today's society, this is especially important. We, with kids, we can just expose them to ideas and their brains will be shaped around those ideas mm -hmm. and behaviors. It's, that's a real thing. The young brain is extremely plastic. It was designed to be customized to its experience. The adult brain is less plastic. And therefore, if you want to make changes to your brain as a young adult and as an adult and, and throughout your lifespan after childhood, you have to direct them for yourself. And I, I, I think the self-directed part is so key because like right now we're dealing with so many problems in society and people are trying to convince each other how they should act, how they should feel, what they should believe. And I think it's wonderful. Some of that is very important. Some of it, you know, this is, I'm not in the realm of politics, so won't go there, but the important thing to realize is we cannot change somebody else's mind after they become an adult. They have to change their own mind. So the tactics for changing people's minds need to take that into account. And so self-directed adaptive plasticity is linked to growth mindset in a very specific way. Okay, let's say I wanna change my ability in anything, a motor skill. I, I can't shoot free throws very well, to be honest, never have, but let's say I wanna learn. There are two, or I want to learn a new language, or I want to learn a new topic in medicine. There are two components to self-directed adaptive plasticity. First, you have to trigger the plasticity, and the triggering of plasticity comes about through very focused, deliberate effort. You absolutely have to focus very hard on what it is you're trying to learn. And there tends to be a feeling or an association of strain with that. And that's because noradrenaline, also called adrenaline, is released in the brain and body when we focus our attention. And it tends to make people feel kind of agitated. And some people think, oh, I don't like this. That doesn't feel good. But that's actually your brain queuing up these systems in the brainstem and in the body that are designed for alertness, the so-called reticular activating system and the yeah. autonomic nervous system. So of course the autonomic nervous system, which is a terrible misnomer because it's actually under our conscious control, we can talk about that, has a sympathetic branch and a parasympathetic branch. The sympathetic branch is the one that leads to states of higher alertness and arousal, pupils dilate, heart rate increases, breathing increases, sweating increases, these kinds of things. And the parasympathetic nervous system is the one that's more associated with quote, unquote, rest and digest, with sleep and transitions to, to kind of sleepy states. So focus, captures a neurochemical event, which is the, the release of acetylcholine from both the brainstem and the basal forebrain and highlights the particular sets of connections in the brain that are active during a given behavior or learning event. So what, was, what does this look like? I decide I'm gonna learn, um, let's say I'm taking a course in medical history. Like for instance, right now I'm listening to a, a wonderful book about the history of Galen. They call him the Prince of Medicine, one of the most you know, incredible physicians of all time and, and pioneers in, in medicine. Every physician of course should know a little bit about Galen because of what he did and it was so incredible by traveling to Egypt and doing these surgeries and then going back to Greece and arguing with everybody and 
getting a lot of things right. If I want to learn about Galen, I have to focus my attention. I can't just passively listen to it. A child can hear things passively and their brain will modify itself. But let's say I really decide I'm fascinated by this topic or that I have to learn it for an exam. When I focus my attention, two things happen. There's that increase in noradrenaline, which leads to that heightened state of activation, sometimes even some agitation. That's happening in the brainstem and in the body. And then the basal forebrain, nucleus basalis in particular, is releasing acetylcholine at the synapses that are involved in my listening to the story about Galen and reading about him and what he learned. And so those synapses are more active compared to the background synapses. They have higher signal to noise. And this is by way of the way that acetylcholine communicates with glia, which communicate with neurons in the cerebral cortex and elsewhere. Those neurons are then marked for strengthening. But the strengthening doesn't happen while I'm reading about Galen and listening to this stuff. It's not during the focus event. That's a trigger event. The actual rewiring, the strengthening of those connections happens during periods of deep sleep, in particular slow wave sleep, stages three and four, for instance, for the sleep aficionados, not during REM sleep, although a little bit during REM sleep, but mostly during slow wave sleep. And, and this is based on recent work that was just published in cell reports, and during periods of deliberate rest or kind of mental decompression throughout the day. So let's say I, I learn, I'm trying to learn a, a free throw or a tennis swing. That triggers the, the plasticity, but the actual plasticity starts to occur during these periods when maybe I lie down and take a nap, or maybe I'm eating my lunch and I'm not thinking about that at all. It's all happening subconsciously. It's running in the background. So, and then of course, most of that is going to happen during deep sleep. So self-directed adaptive plasticity requires focused attention and focused attention goes with alertness. So you need, so you need alertness, which is through the noradrenergic system. You need focused attention, which is happening through the cholinergic system, acetylcholine. And then you need deep sleep and periods of rest and deep sleep and rest. It's very interesting are are associated with a variety of things, but neurochemically, the major ones are serotonin and GABA. So there's this kind of seesawing between that we can see that there's this, why did I mention the autonomic nervous system? Because there's this sympathetic activation to really get you in learning mode, trigger those and mark those synapses for change. And then parasympathetic states are when the actual rewiring occurs. And I think this has been vastly overlooked in all the popular discussion about neuroplasticity. And in addition, there's, you know, you hear all the time, fire together, wire together. People incorrectly ascribe that to Hebb. Donald Hebb what, did hypothesize um, long-term potentiation and the, um, the idea that synapses could change their, their weights and their strength. But it was Carla Schatz, my colleague at Stanford, and then she was at Berkeley and then Harvard, but then came back to Stanford, thankfully for us. Carla was the one who said, fire together, wire together. She really deserves credit. And she's far too classy to go out there and tell people that she deserves credit. So I'm doing it. Um, and she didn't put me to the task. But I mean, this is 30 years of some of the most groundbreaking and important work in developmental neurobiology. And she deserves credit for that. And adult plasticity is the work of people like Mike Merzenich, who was at UCSF, Norm Weinberger at UC Irvine and, and others, their scientific offspring. But Carla deserves credit and so I feel obligated to say for fire together, wire together and together, wire together is largely about developmental plasticity. 
So for adult plasticity, we didn't have a kind of catchy phrase. And so I'm not as good at creating these phrases. So it's, if someone can come up with one, it's focus and alertness, and then it's rest. And that those are the, those are the ingredients for plasticity. And it doesn't feel easy because it's not. The adult nervous system doesn't really want to change. It's a big investment to change. The baby brain, the young brain, the whole neurochemical milieu is there to support change. But then the brain is really there to perform, not to change. And so if you want to change it, you got to put in some work. And that work will, won't feel great. But the good news is if you chunk that learning phase, so work by Eric Knudsen, uh, now retired, but colleague of mine in the Department of Neurobiology showed that there are two things that can make neuroplasticity as robust in adulthood as it is in childhood. The first one is chunking. Break down the learning into very short bouts so that you can capture intense release of uh, maximum release of acetylcholine and norepinephrine. How do you do that? Well, they published another study showing that if the incentive is very high, in other words, if you have to learn if you wanna eat, or if you have to learn if you wanna live, brain circuits then are willing to change very dramatically. And brain circuits don't know about living or eating. Brain circuits only know urgency and focus. And so I think that's really important to understand is that the adult brain can change. Was that Eric Knudsen? Yeah. Uh, Eric Knudsen, I think he talked about adult minds can adapt just as well as young minds, right? Absolutely. And Eric is a really interesting guy. You know, he's my next, his office is next door to mine. So um, he still comes in and He's a brilliant scholar and researcher. And, um, you know, Eric, actually, he went to UC Santa Barbara. I'll say he's, a, he's an avid surfer and volleyball player. And um, and I'm always pick, trying to pick his brain for, like, n stuff about neuroplasticity uh, when I run into him. But, you know, it, at the end of the day, his papers, which I, you know, summarized not nearly as well as he could, but I summarized a little bit just a moment ago, they really just point to the fact that, like most things worth doing in life, it's not – very sophisticated, but it's hard. It's like you got to lean in and focus and force it. You know, a lot of people think that focus um, is going to feel like flow and nothing against the folks that study flow, but forget it. There are going to be times when learning feels great, but most of the time it's going to be friction. It's going to be a sandpaper struggle. And that relates to growth mindset. So growth mindset my take on growth mindset from a neurobiological standpoint, looking through the lens of the nervous system at growth mindset, is when we talk about rewards, we're really talking about two kinds of rewards. There's the reward of effort and strain and kind of seeking things that aren't that you don't have yet. In fact, the word yet is kind of a hallmark of growth mindset. And that's associated with the dopamine system. Mother Nature installed in all organisms this reward system so that when we're heading in the right direction of something, there's a sense of reward too. So growth mindset is attached to that. And then there's the reward systems associated with what we already have and gratitude and appreciation and things like, you know, your friends, your children, your, your loved ones, your dog, your, the meal you're about to eat, gratitude. Sometimes this comes through a reflection, prayer, meditation. That's associated with the serotonin system, which tends to make us less in action, less in modes of action and more in modes of quiet and in rest. So if you're somebody who is seeking to build a growth mindset, my suggestion is to understand these two systems 
and to understand that the effort process itself won't feel good, but cognitively, this is the beauty of having a human brain, cognitively, you can say that agitation, that's me getting better. That's me heading up the up the ladder, grabbing these rungs. And you can with time, you will start to associate more and more of a sense of reward, a sense of pleasure with that. Now, I don't want people to think of that as positive self-talk. And Carol says this much better than I ever could. But positive self-talk, most of the time you're wrong. <laughs> positive self-talk is telling yourself in the classic definition, it's telling yourself, well, I'm not doing well, but that's good anyway. But what I'm talking about here is learning to attach reward to the effort process, not to the end goal. And occasionally people, usually very accomplished people will say, how do I bring back that feeling of drive and pursuit that I once had? How do I get that, you know, engaged? And I always say, oh, that's simple. Give away all the extrinsic rewards. You know, there's a study done with nursery school students at Stanford being nursery school a long time ago, kids that draw for fun, they watch, they figured out which kids draw for fun and they started rewarding those kids with a little gold star on their, on their drawing. And then they took away the gold stars. And what they found is the kids didn't draw as much after you took away the gold stars. They, they didn't, they lost interest in it because they got attached to the extrinsic reward, not the intrinsic process of drawing. So whether or not you're a medical student, whether or not you're an aspiring scientist, whether or not you're an aspiring athlete or all of the above or something else, be very careful and mindful of what you attach reward to. If you want to, uh, I say this to, I have a friend who um, is remarkable at this. He and his wife, had, had, they have children now, but they have this beautiful relationship where they're always helping each other. The both of them are like these givers and they're always giving, of course, to the kids. They're always giving to each other. And it's almost like they don't expect any rewards. And as a consequence, they're in constant mode of receiving and giving and receiving and rewards. And it sounds kind of corny and self-helpy, but I think what they've done is subconsciously, I think they've, they've uh, adopted this process. So anyway, I, I answered your question with a long monologue and I apologize for that, but hopefully that will, um, that will give some support to people use subjective tools but also extend the period over which you can focus. People say, well, I can't focus very long. Well, practice focusing, you know, and the, those circuits will get better. You know, they get, you can get better at focusing. And some people are practicing deliberately training their brain to be defocused. Every time you reflexively pick up your phone and you find yourself looking at Instagram without having decided, remember sensation, perception, feeling, thought, action. A lot of people are just going action, action, action loops, start inserting, uh, stop, think, do I want to do this? There's no answer that I can tell you. If you say yes, why? Well, I'm interested in connecting with some people or no, actually I'm just doing this to avoid something else. Well, then you can start intervening in that loop exactly. and you don't become so reflexive. So you have this power of conscious control use it. And nowadays we have become very reflexive because a lot of technologies, which are wonderful, have us in reflexive mode. We are not being thoughtful about what we're doing. And then we're finding ourselves two or three days later going, I'm exhausted. I'm depressed. I'm overwhelmed. Well, are you training your brain for focus or are you training your brain for distraction? I think most people are training their brain for defocus and distraction. This is so important. There's so many points I want to hit on. So, I mean, this kind of started with the growth mindset and 
students doing math problems that they they knew they maybe couldn't get right and then finding motivation in that. And I think that that's, that goes into you know me being a med student just a few years ago. And now I'm an academic advisor for the med students at my school. Like one of the things I tell them is obviously you need to have that focused, deliberate effort and that strain, which sometimes isn't the funnest, but you have to keep a growth mindset. Like I'm going to grow from this. But then after you finish that sleep is like the second half of studying. Like you have to make sure you're getting your seven, eight hours of sleep in order for your brain to actually be able to retain what you're, what you're learning, you know? So I really feel like as med students and as students in general, understanding that process, which means discomfort is key and embracing that struggle because in that struggle is where the growth comes from you know and when we have a growth mindset with that that's where i believe like you can probably have better outcomes compared to if you have a fixed mindset where you don't think improvement is possible and you're not having a an organized approach to that and then you you mentioned subjective insertion where you know through the process of struggling take time to to count the things you're grateful for be be grateful for the struggle but then also reflect on how far you've come and be objective with that don't just you know give yourself a pat on the back for doing nothing all day but if you are really you know being the best version of yourself and you're executing at a high level take a break to be grateful for that um and one of the greatest things that i learned was this subjective insertion where uh for example just the last 13 days i had 12 hour shifts in the hospital in a row so it's been 13 days straight i've had 12 hour shifts every day that's that's mentally and emotionally exhausting, you know. Um, and one of my subjective insertions is that uh, this is a hormetic agent <laughs> that you know me me putting myself through these uh, 13 days. I'm gonna make sure I execute my goals outside of residency as well. So I made sure I worked out five to six times every week. I made sure that I ate correctly, and those are the only things I had room for. And you know, I finished that yesterday, and just reflecting back on the level of execution despite the exhaustion, like I know that that small amount of stress, that it will be advantageous for me. And keeping that mindset, it's almost created this like reward system where like I'm I'm looking forward to the stress so then I can show the stress that I can execute at an even higher level. And every level allows for more adapting and more uh, new learning, which is never easy. And you got to get sleep. I think sleep is really, really big. Well, well, sleep is very important. I do want to emphasize that the ability to lean into growth mindset, effort and strain for sake of neuroplasticity or just for sake of anything that you're doing, you know, taking care of young, young kids or a loved one or just learning of any kind. So it's really about toggling back and forth between those, you know, high sympathetic. So effort and strain, sleep and rest, focus, strain and effort, relaxation, decompression. And so we're thinking like dopamine, acetylcholine, norepinephrine, and and that look to the neurology folks out there and the neuroscientists, I realize I'm painting with a broad brush here. I realize it's not just these molecules, okay? So I, I but I, for, for sake of, you know, simplicity, in general, this is the way that I think about it. And then being able to rest, so, the, so gratitude and really what I always say to medical, aspiring medical students, you know, pre-meds and, and scientists is you got to find non-destructive ways to replenish yourself. You got to find, you know, now some people exercise can be that some people train so hard, even when they're depleted, that they end up sick and depleted. You know, you have to know, you got to know when to throttle and you got to know when to break. And Mm -hmm. one thing that my lab has been very involved in, and I should say that 
some of the things we've talked about in my lab has been involved in things like stress and autonomic control, other things I'm pulling from other people's work, um, trying to credit them as I go along, of course. But one thing that my lab has been very um, involved in is the use of respiration tools. So using breathing tools to try and adjust internal state, because what I'm really talking about is being able to dynamically control that autonomic nervous system so that you can lean in hard and then get recovery. And it's not just about work hard all day, sleep. You know, the, the undergrad mentality is work, 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 then crash. But if you're going to be a physician on the ward or you're going to be, a, you know, a functional human being in life, you're going to need to learn how to do this all day long so that you're conserving energy and you're replenishing and you're getting plasticity as you're going. So we've been very focused on how to regulate the autonomic nervous system in real time and how to get better at sleeping. So I'll just mention since we were talking about sleep, getting better at sleeping fundamentally requires two things. One is activating the, the parasympathetic nervous system. So learning to relax the body and mind. And then the second is learning to turn off the sympathetic nervous system. And those are two separate things. And turning off thinking is hard. It's hard to control your thinking with thinking. I can't just think don't stress or calm down or don't think about that. The mind tends to loop when we're in these high activation states for a long time. A lot of people find their work, 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 and then they can't sleep. And so when you need sleep the most. So how do you do this? So uh, there are a number of practices that my lab has been studying. And here in collaboration with a guy who's in, in his laboratory, who's an MD, PhD, um, Dr. David Spiegel, who's in our department of psychiatry, a real pioneer in medical hypnosis, in trauma, in trauma uh, treatment, and in breast cancer treatment. And you can look up David, he's done phenomenal work. It's S-P-I-E-G-L-E, -E, um, just real pioneer and wonderful physician and, and scientist. And, you know, there are some practices that involve lying down and it's not meditation, and it's not hypnosis, but listening to a script that has you doing long exhale breathing combined with a sort of body scan and done for about 10 minutes a day. Our lab has found that first of all, it puts the body and brain into deep states of relaxation that mimic sleep. So for people who are in their residency, yeah. like sometimes you've only got 30 minutes and if you're on your phone, you're engaging norepinephrine, you're still, it's low attentional state, but you're still, it's like spending little bits of money as you're walking down the hall having these deliberate decompression states of really activating that serotonergic parasympathetic pathway is possible using these tools. I can forward you those scripts. Um, some of my work with people in foreign and domestic military special operations, those guys use these tools sometimes to try and decompress so that they can lean back into what is arguably the highest risk, highest consequence profession of all, right? They're putting their life on the line every time they deploy the, the ability to fall asleep more quickly, the ability to stay asleep, or if you're going to be sleeping only four hours and your ideal situation would be eight hours, how can you get deeper, more, you know, more restorative sleep? That's a big focus of my lab. And some of these audio scripts, in addition to other things, can be helpful. But what you're really talking about is training your parasympathetic nervous system to engage on demand. Just like you want your sympathetic nervous system to train on demand. When you, it's easy if like someone comes into the ER and you know they're bleeding out, your sympathetic nervous system is like, go, you're not gonna take a nap, right? But when all that's done, your ability to switch back into a relaxed parasympathetic state is going to dictate how well you'll, you're gonna be able to perform 
when that next patient comes in or that next key event in life hits. This, uh, this is one of the things that I really want to discuss with you. It's the most exciting topic. Uh, so breathing modalities. Uh, we've had Wim Hof on our podcast, and he's actually become a personal friend of mine. And I, I learned the power of breathing from him. Um, I use a few different breathing techniques that are dependent on circumstance. So if I, if I feel like I'm a little high strung and I'm stressed out, I'll do the 478 breathing method. Very, very simple breathing method, uh, physiologic size. Um, and then in the morning, uh, to get actually ramped up, I've been doing the Wim Hof method for seven years now. And I actually learned this from your Instagram account where um, one of the theories is that um, the Wim Hof is rapid breathing. It's 30 breaths of belly breathing basically and doing it pretty rapidly. So you're like, you know, you're breathing very fast. You do that 30 breaths in a row and it activates your sympathetic nervous system and it puts you That's in this right. – uh, adrenaline state but then one of the things you said is it can increase your threshold for stress because you could place yourself into this position of a of a stress response um on demand by doing these breathing techniques so you know using these breathing techniques as manipulation using ones that can calm you down using ones that can kind of increase your response to stress like what, what have you learned yeah so um my lab and david spiegel's lab together have a collaboration and we're really one unified team looking at how different specific patterns of breathing impact brain states, sleep, all sorts of parameters, hormone levels, et cetera. Um, to back up a little bit, um, there, I, I take a slightly different orientation towards the use of respiration to control the nervous system. Um, I think there's great power in things like Wim Hof breathing, Tumo, which is actually Tumo breathing, ancient Tumo breathing, um, Kundalini breathing, all these different kinds of breathing, box breathing, um, et cetera. But a few years ago, I decided that I really wanted to build out tools that would allow people to control their autonomic nervous system and calm down quickly in real time, what I call real time tools. And physiological size, which you mentioned, were discovered in the 30s, but um, which are a spontaneous pattern of breathing that people and animals do where they inhale twice and then exhale longer. So it's inhale. So it's double inhale followed by an exhale. Typically the inhales are through the nose and the exhales through the mouth, although not always. We do that spontaneously during sleep. We do it under conditions of claustrophobia when carbon dioxide in the bloodstream gets too high. This is nature's way of offloading carbon dioxide because it maximum that second inhale maximally expands the alveoli sacs of the lungs which then pulls carbon dioxide into those sacs of the lungs and then you offload more carbon dioxide on the exhale As seen in animals seen in humans it's reflexive but you can also do it deliberately so through some consulting work with various groups um, we've been testing this in the laboratory we've been looking at this how physiological size in my understanding and what from what I've seen it's still preliminary but seems to be the fastest way to adjust your stress level down and you can do this while walking down the hall you can do this although you have to might be a little covert about it in a conversation with somebody where you're triggered about something that is separate so that's a real-time tool that's separate from something like Wim Hof which is really it's a practice, it's breathwork practice. So Wim Hof, as you mentioned, or Tumo breathing involves doing 25 or 30 breaths like this. And by the 25th or 30th, you tend to be tingly because you're offloading a lot of carbon dioxide. There's the constriction of the, of the microvasculature in the periphery. 
And then there's typically a long exhale and a hold and a breath hold, breath hold of about 15 seconds. And some people like to do an inhale hold as well. You have to be careful with this. Don't ever do this near water. Four people have died, to my knowledge, doing Wim Hof near water. This is on Wikipedia, so I'm not, you know, you can go there to look for the references. Um, you need to be careful because when you're doing breath holds, you don't want to be near water, yeah. bathtub or driving or driving or otherwise. But I think done done correctly, I think it's it's safe for most people. But obviously, talk to your doctor, or be a doctor and talk to your uh, yourself. Uh, but the idea here is this is the one podcast I can say that on. So the um, the idea there is you're generating adrenaline release, and then you're sitting calmly, and you're getting comfortable with high levels of adrenaline. The same thing can probably be accomplished with a cold shower or a deliberate ice bath. These kinds of things, these are these are ways of self-stress inoculating. Now, here I'm quoting my colleagues, David Spiegel. Again, he says, you know, it's not about the state you're in. It's also about how you got there and whether or not you had anything to do with it. So it's very different if you trigger me and I feel stressed than whether or not I control the ramp up to that adrenaline release. The other thing is there's a really nice paper published in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences showing that this style of breathing, these 25 or 30 breaths followed by an exhale and a 15 second breath hold repeated two or three times, leads to release of adrenaline and cortisol that can offset E. coli infection. And I'm, yeah. it's wild, they actually injected people with E. coli and one group who did mindfulness meditation got fever, diarrhea, vomiting, the kinds of things you expect being injected with high titers of E. coli. And the other group that did this style of breathing had far less symptomology or no symptomology, were able to not get fever, diarrhea, uh, et cetera. Now, we need to take into consideration that maybe it's a good thing to counter infection, right? That you, you want to have the immune response. But um, I think it speaks to a more important underlying theme. And I wasn't involved in that research. I'm just reporting it. Wim Hof was actually directly involved right. in that research. And That's we, we talked about this, so our audience is familiar with it. So it's so cool to hear hear your side of it. I'm I'm excited to hear okay, what you're yeah. saying. You know, I, I think the underlying principle that's perhaps more important than anything related to uh, Wim Hof or other forms of breathing is that stress and high levels of adrenaline are actually protective, right? They were designed to be protective. So under conditions of famine or hunger, you couldn't have the immune system crash when you're in high output. But this is why if you work, 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 or you're caring for others, and then you finally rest and take a break, typically that's when you get sick. Yeah. And it's because the immune system is governed by and gated by the sympathetic nervous system. And so, yes, you need sleep to restore. Absolutely. But we, we've somehow lost track of the fact that like stress can mobilize us. Stress is good for the Im immune system under in short periods of time. So much like heart rate variability is good. We now know that you want a lot of heart rate variability across the day. You want um, stress level variability. And so we shouldn't be so dismayed about uh, a spike in stress. Now, it's spikes in stress that we don't come down from that are that are problematic. And so having tools like physiological size or having a breathwork practice can be very powerful. I'm a big fan of real-time tools. And the real-time tools that I've been focused on, like physiological size and some of the tools that relate to the visual system, are I'm a fan of them because they are based on neurons and neural circuits that we all have built into us. There's no learning involved. You have to know what to do, 
But once you know what to do, you can do it first time and every time. It's Mother Nature's design. She designed these. And so I, I think that when you see something in the brains and nervous systems of all species, including humans, that's designed, that achieves the same purpose, there's a good chance that it was designed for that purpose. Oh, yeah. I agree. I have a lot of questions about this stress response. So when we when we talk about doing the Wim Hof method or any diaphragmatic breathing, so I know that in an acute situations it can improve the immune system. But then when we talk about, say you have some type of uh, external stressor, but it's been like three months and eventually it's going to lead to immunosuppression. Uh, I guess where's that fine line of like, at what point is that cutoff going to be, well, is it not going to be advantageous anymore and it's going to be at my own expense? Is that subjective? Yeah. Well, we can make it objective and we're and we're trying and others are trying. So one thing is it's going to depend on how the, the depth and duration of your sleep. So nowadays, you know, there are devices like Aura Ring and Whoop. And um, my lab is uh, we have a, a non-commercial, I should just say, partnership with Whoop that Whoop has provided um, uh, Whoop straps for our studies on breathing. So we're, we happen to be using Whoop because um, they gave them to us and we're grateful for that. But I just want to make very clear I don't have product affiliations, no, no formal ones. So the uh, as they relate to sleep, I am on some company boards, just full disclosure. Yeah. To, uh, physicians are used to disclosures, but nothing that relates to this discussion. So one of the important things is that if you're getting really good sleep, you, you can work very long time without getting sick. We are trying to make it concrete and operationalized by using a tool called the carbon dioxide tolerance test. Now, this is not a perfect tool, but it's one that um, I'm very excited that we're researching and it and I'll be happy to share it with you because you could do it any time of day. And it's um, it's a back of the envelope measurement, but it involves taking four breaths kind of slow, ideally through the nose. So that would be one. So you would do four of those. Then you do a fifth breath in as deep as you can go, you wouldn't talk like I'm doing now, and then you would slowly, you would start a timer and you would slowly release the air through the nose as slowly as you can. So what this is really, it's measuring a couple things. It's measuring A, how well you can tolerate carbon dioxide in your system. B, your mechanical control of the diaphragm and lungs, like how well you're controlling exhales. So that's a mechanical nerve to muscle thing, okay? And then, it tends to also vary by circadian time of day. And so if you find, for instance, that it takes you 20 seconds or less before you are empty, lungs empty, that is what I would call, let's just say, short or brief carbon dioxide blow-off time. If it's about 25 seconds to 45 seconds, that's pretty moderate carbon dioxide blow-off time or what we would call carbon dioxide discard rate. Mm-hmm. And then if it's 50 seconds and up, maybe some people even a minute or a minute and 30, then you're going to have a very long carbon dioxide discard rate. Now, what does this mean? Well, first of all, I want to say if you're going to do this long exhale, you want to end the timer when your lungs are empty. I don't doubt that you could sit for a minute with your lungs empty and that's great, but that's not what we're measuring. We're measuring how long it takes you to go from lungs full to lungs empty in a controlled voluntary way. Okay. If your carbon dioxide blow off rate is fast, you, that means your carbon dioxide tolerance is low. Okay? Oh. And we could and we could look at and we've related this to things with with um, you, need, you know, like pulse oximeters and things like that. But I don't I don't want to go there just right now. The if it's 
medium, it means you're managing carbon dioxide pretty well. And if it's longer, it means you're managing carbon dioxide very well. Now, free divers who take big gulps of air and then free dive, they don't pack air. They do expand their lungs a little bit with breath work, but what they're really good at is controlling the carbon dioxide offload time, discard rate. And the whole get name of the game for them is staying calm with heightened levels yeah. of carbon dioxide in their system, okay? Because the impulse to breathe is triggered in the brainstem by a set of neurons that are measuring carbon dioxide, not oxygen. You bring in oxygen as a consequence of that reflex. So let's say, so to answer your question, I would take your carbon dioxide tolerance test maybe one to three times a day. It's very fast, but ideally first thing in the morning when you wake up. And if you find that you're going from a 45 second or a 60 second blow off time to a 20 second carbon dioxide discard rate for two or three days in a row, not only do I think that your sympathetic nervous system is working too hard and you're not recovering, but I actually would predict, I'll bet you a sushi lunch that you're gonna get sick in a couple days. Some little minor infection or some sinus thing, it doesn't have to be severe. And I'll, I'll bet you that not because I have the data in hand, but because of what this sort of is reflective of generally. And this is kind of a scientist to physician bet. This is not me betting my career, okay? Sushi lunch is, is a real thing. You know, it's a real thing, but it's not a huge for, thing. I'd be happy to be wrong. Since we're on this topic, this is excellent. This is really cool because you're talking about like peak inspiratory volume and then uh, peak expiratory volume and taking them as much time as you can between it um, to see how long it can take you to offload uh, carbon dioxide. And one of the things that I would theorize with the Wim Hof method, um, having done it daily for about seven years, um, well, the first thing with the 30, uh, the 30 diaphragmatic breaths is when you do it first thing in the morning, usually in the morning, you have more carbon dioxide in your system than at any time of day. Because most of the time when we're sleeping, we actually retain a lot of carbon dioxide because we don't breathe, we breathe really shallow, right? That's right, so, we're under breathing. That's exactly, right. yeah, and that's a proponent of uh, OSA, obstructive sleep apnea, people who weigh more, they retain even more carbon dioxide. So one of the best things we could do in the mornings is either exercise, because it helps us uh, expire a lot, or we could do rapid breathing like the Wim Hof technique, and it should help you um, bring your carbon dioxide levels a little bit lower. And this is theorized, I'm just it's more of a question. Um, mm -hmm. from, from after the 30 breaths, usually you do a exhale, and hold, um, and then after that, you'll do an inhale and hold, right? right? And the goal is to be able to, sometimes you hold your breath for as long as you can, and I wouldn't recommend this to someone who's not experienced. Uh, I'd recommend doing this either with a, a Wim Hof uh, practitioner or someone who's trained in uh, breathing, obviously, right? Um, but I but think people still get a lot of benefit. I totally agree with what you're saying, and I appreciate that you put in that cautionary note because um, it, it, you know, it's not, to, it's not a, it's not uh, to be taken lightly, but I think that um, doing the 25 or 30 breaths will offload a lot of carbon dioxide. And then the exhale hold for, you know, five to 15 seconds. I think most people, people can probably manage that. The inhale holds are starting to get into the realm of challenging the pulmonary system. And you, that's where people can run into trouble if they're not skilled. Oh, that makes sense. So, um, I know like Otto Van Warburg, he, he won like a Nobel Prize when he realized that like cells in an acidic environment, they're more likely to become cancerous over time. And I guess the theory and the question that I have is, you know, this idea that people who may exercise first thing in the morning or people who may practice some type of breathing that can offload carbon dioxide um, and, and to do methods 
like that, you, you likely prolong your life and you likely uh, decrease your ra- rates of cancer. I don't know. That's, that's more of a question to you, but uh, I, I that- can only I can only double down on your question. So I am not aware of any direct links. You know, one of the reasons this is kind of interesting. So since you, you have a medically oriented audience, you know, one of the reasons why my lab is focused on neurons and neural circuits that control specific patterns of breathing is because we know that that's hardwired into the system. And we wanna understand how that can be used to regulate the nervous system, et cetera. One of the reasons why breath work, and by breath work, I mean deliberate practices like Wim Hof, like Kundalini breathing, all these um, holotropic breathing and things like that. One of the reasons why those have remained so fringe is in part the naming. The naming is terrible, frankly, because it doesn't tell you what it does and it doesn't tell you how to do it. So they've always been, and there's nothing wrong with people having uh, businesses tied to these things. I don't, I, how, I don't, you know, I believe in capitalism. I'm not, it's not a problem for me, but it, the, the practices are kind of vaulted in, in strange naming and sometimes even some mysticism, or it's so subjective that it's not really clear how somebody in the medical community would ever even feel comfortable picking up on it. You really have to be someone who's curious about that. But the other thing that's really held back the study of respiration and its applications is claims about uh, effects on cancers and all sorts of other diseases. Nothing puts that stuff into the mode of fringe more than claim, outrageous claims, yeah. for which there, there are no double-blind peer peer-reviewed studies in quality journals. So I'm not beating up on the the community of breath work. In fact, the opposite. You know, one of the things that I'm really trying to do is trying to create bridges between communities so that we can test this stuff and look at this. Now, Spiegel and I have this, this collaboration to look at which, to look at minimal effective dose. So what are the minimum amount of time and patterns of breathing that can lead to the maximum positive effects on stress and patterns of sleep? That's our, our very focused question right now. But there are these other interesting questions about inflammation, about acid states in the body, um, et cetera, and also brain states, like holotropic breathing is kind of famous for inducing you know, hallucinogenic states and things like that. I think eventually we will get there, but, and I'm not trying to short circuit the conversation, but I just wanna be clear that you know, the, the National Institutes of Health now has a division uh, for complementary medicine. And they fund studies of the sort that we're talking about here, just like the Eye Institute studies, wow. you know, fund studies of retinal repair. Yeah. And retinitis pigmentosa and glaucoma and these sorts of things, which my lab is also very involved in. So there, it's happening. But I think the claims have um, isolated people. It's sort of like the, the closest example I can think of is ketogenic diet. Like yeah. ketogenic diet was developed as a treatment for epilepsy, right? Yeah. And yep. be effective in some forms of pediatric epilepsy. Then it became a kind of thing like in for weight loss. And then now it's kind of become this battle between the plant-based people and the you know ketogenic typically, although not always means meat-based or largely meat-based. And what's interesting though is there's a paper published just the other day in Cell Metabolism describing how ketosis may actually be favorable for warding off specific forms of viruses. Wow. and for viral immunity. So I, I I haven't read it in detail, but I'm really excited. This is a, you know, Cell Metabolism is an excellent journal, peer-reviewed, Cell Press is fabulous, you know, publishing house. So most papers that you see there have gone through very stringent review. And so it's starting, the stuff that you see on Instagram, the stuff that you see in these 
um, ads, what used to be late night infomercials and are now just social media, are starting to make their way into rigorous study in the fields of science and medicine. But it's slow, but it's happening. And people like me and people like you are trying to keep it not narrow, but very concrete and very objective, but with an eye on the subjective and how that might be incorporated into objective studies. I, I couldn't agree more. You mentioned uh, you have a Nobel Prize winning colleague of yours who, who swims a mile a day before delving into hard mental work. I, I swear you said he was like 90 years old. He's 90. Wow. Okay. Can you tell us how we can literally earn a sharper mind? Because that, that was a really inspiring story. Yeah. So the colleague I'm referring to is at Columbia. I, I call him a colleague because um, he, we're in the field of neuroscience together, but um, it, most people know him as Eric Kendall, who uh-huh. won the Nobel Prize for his work, you know, found foundational work on learning and memory. Um, I have other colleagues, I should say, including our former uh, one of the, let's just say a high level administrator slash dean slash provost, because they all did it, uh, running uh, first thing in the morning, 5 a.m. runs, you know, a, the late Don Kennedy, former president of Stanford and very accomplished scientist I knew very well because I grew up with his kids. And um, Don was a phenomenal human and um, running every morning early, uh, well into his 70s and 80s. Kendall swims at least three miles a week. Um, Eric's work, Eric Kendall's work has actually shown that there are molecules released by bone, things like osteocalcin, when we are in movement, doesn't have to be high impact movement, but just movement of the musculature triggers release of hormone like and peptides from the skeleton that support hippocampal and learning and memory health and as well support the immune system. And this makes sense, you know, we're, of course I'm making up a just so story, but once you realize like that the, the needs to know if the body is being used or not and whether or not it needs to think about longevity or not, think it doesn't think about it consciously, but to generate the kind of neurochemical and hormonal milieus that support longevity. One of the best ways to die early and become dumb is to, um, to become immobile. And I say that n- not with any any disrespect towards any person. I'm actually thinking about animal studies. My friend John Rady, who's at Harvard Medical School, described in one of his books, I think it was Spark or maybe it was Go Wild, about there's a an ocean animal that when it sits down on a rock and stops swimming, it anchors down on that rock and it actually starts eating its own brain. Its brain starts metabolizing itself. Now that's a very primitive and dramatic example, but movement as the great physiologist for the medical Textbooks, you'll remember Sherrington said, the final common path is movement. The nervous system, it wants to think, it wants to feel, it wants to remember, but what it really was designed to do was to move this thing we call a body. And so movement, not only uh, I learned from you today, this is new information, might offload some of the elevated carbon dioxide in sleep and put us into more active and more learning facilitated states, but movement is fundamental to creating neurochemical environments that the nervous system perceives by way of receptors and says, oh, I need to actually prepare for more action the next day and the next day and the next day. Because remember, at the end of the day, the nervous system isn't just doing this interoception, exteroception thing, is a predictive machine. It wants to know what's coming next because neuroplasticity is slow. And so it needs to predict what's coming. So movement is, I would say, uh, my colleagues who have maintained good health 
into their late years, both cognitive and physical health, almost all of them have a regular practice of either running or swimming or cycling. Um, some probably also have a resistance exercise regime, but although mostly it's aerobic exercise regime, and they tend to do it consistently, you know, uh, three to seven days a week. And it sounds pretty much like the information that we're always getting, yeah. but I, yeah. it's a real thing. Now, what you mentioned here is uh, really important when you talk about movement, because uh, you're an expert in eyes and eye movement. And this is a great opportunity for you to kind of discuss your study on the retina and, you know, linking that to EMDR. And I, I could have sworn you like cured blindness or something. I like read that. <laughs> and I was like, I got to well, ask you about I that. I wish so I had cured blindness. <laughs> um, okay, so, so we work on vision and visual repair. So we have a very active program in my lab looking at glaucoma, trying to figure out how using gene therapy and also electrical stimulation, mostly using virtual reality that we can inspire uh, retinal cells, in particular ganglion cells, to which are the cells that connect the eye and the brain to reconnect to the eye and the brain. Um, that's an ongoing clinical trial for which I hope to be able to report the results to you in the near future. The other aspect of our lab is looking at things like respiration, but also how vision and modes of vision impact our internal states. Now, there is a discovery that was not made by me, but it was made by Francine Shapiro in the late 80s. She was actually in Palo Alto behind Stanford University taking a walk and realized that during that walk, her feelings and perceptions around a troubling event, she never described what that event was, were reduced. She brought that to the clinic. She was a clinical psychologist and had people literally sit eyes open and moving their eyes from side to side while recounting traumatic events. And her success rate in dealing, in treating these traumatic events was quite high. Not perfect, but quite high. It was called over time EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprocessing. People used to ask me about this because my lab works on vision and we work on stress. And they'd ask about EMDR and I, my response, my naive response was that's ridiculous. Like yeah. why would moving your eyes have any impact on brain state or trauma? I think that's crazy. It's a beautiful, probably a beautiful example of the placebo effect or something else. And then 2018, 2019, I really got fed a dose of reality, which was, I was asked to review no fewer than four papers, a couple in mice, one in primates and one in humans showing that these lateralized eye movements back and forth, back and forth, not vertical eye movements, but eye movements back and forth, side to side, triggered suppression of activity in the amygdala, the primary threat detection center in the brain. And I thought, oh my goodness, A, I am badly wrong. B, I should be very careful how I respond to these kind of crazy claim, what seem to be crazy claims in the future. And C, what in the world is going on that these eye movements would trigger suppression of the amygdala? So I hit the books. Meanwhile, more papers came out on this. And I should say that those papers were actually not studying emotional states. They were actually just looking at eye movements and in an unbiased way, evaluating how changes in the brain occur. And so that's kind of cool because they weren't looking for the answer they got. But I talked to a colleague of mine who's a very important person in the field of neuroscience that is, I think, probably underappreciated um, in the medical community, but everyone relies on his work. His name is David Burson, and he's the chair of neurosciences at Brown University. And David discovered the intrinsically photosensitive ganglion cells. These are the neurons in the eye that set the circadian clock. 
and lead to um, all sorts of things like more alertness during the day, the ability to sleep well at night, timing of melatonin rhythms. Circadian biology is fundamentally important for so many things, right? ER psychosis for the for you uh, those that spend time in the ER, you've seen patients lose their mind. That's ER psychosis. That's circadian defect. I see you so, especially, man. They'll wake you up every hour, so they get it bad. Yeah. Yeah. So, David is my go-to person when I'm perplexed about something in the visual system because he is an encyclopedia. He's also an incredible teacher and he's also a great friend. So David and I started talking about this and turns out what I knew before and what David reminded me of is that the visual system is yoked to the, or attached to the vestibular system. So we move our head like this, pitch, yaw, and roll, which creates retinal slip on the eyes. You know, when I take a picture with my phone and I move it, it's blurry. But when I walk around and move my head, the image isn't blurry. And that's because we have eye movements that offset our motion. And the reason for this is that we have the semicircular canals in the inner ear that either are oriented this way like a loop, this way like a loop, and then there's one that's kind of at like a 45 degrees. You have these little beads of calcium that roll around and cause depolarization of the inner ear hair cells. In other words, we have a visual system that is proprioceptive for our own self-generated movement. Proprioception, of course, being knowledge of where we are in space in relation to ourself. So Francine Shapiro didn't presumably know any of this, but when she realized, I don't, or maybe she did know this, fairness, when we walk, we reflexively generate these side-to-side -side eye movements. So oh, yeah. these side-to-side -side eye movements that she exported or imported rather to the to her clinic were mimicking walking. Now you could say, why didn't she just take patients walking? But that's complicated because you need open space, you need privacy. So she had the insight to bring the eye movements to the clinic. And what I believe is happening is that every animal, including humans, has a mechanism by which when we're in forward movement, we suppress activation of the brain centers that suppress movement, like threat detection in the amygdala, which leads generally to pausing, freezing, or running and retreating, okay? Hiding or pausing. And then in 2018, a graduate student in my lab, Lindsay Soleil, published a study in the journal Nature showing that forward movement is associated with a suppression of the fear response and an activation of what you could call the courage or confrontational response. And forward movement triggers the release of dopamine. And so through a what's called a collateral connection to the nucleus accumbens for the aficionados. So what does this all mean? This means that forward movement reduces our anxiety at a basal level. Getting out and running and getting or biking or swimming in being in self-generated optic flow. And it has to be bodily movement Driving won't do it because when you're driving, you're not doing these lateralized eye movements. So self-generated optic flow reduces anxiety. And Francine Shapiro used it to reduce anxiety while people were recalling a trauma. And that over time uncoupled the trauma from the feeling of discomfort. Now, my colleagues in psychiatry tell me that EMDR works best for single event traumas or traumas that are occur multiple times but are, are kind of of the same signature. It's not gonna be good for like the trauma that for some people is all of 2020 or the trauma that is all of a wartime experience. It's gonna be good for, potentially good for treatment of 
isolated incident trauma, car crash, sexual assault, um, et cetera. And I realize this gets into kind of dark territory. And so no one should ever look at any one treatment as being certain to cure them. But EMDR is, as far as I know, is one of the few behavioral practices that's board certified for the treatment of trauma. So this is AMA stuff. This is, um, you know, it's not uh, kind of from the self-help shelf. It's from the AMA literature and the medical, medical treatment. So the eyes are controlling our internal state. And movements are controlling our internal state. Viewing sunlight in the morning wakes up our brain and nervous system by way of cortisol secretion. It sets a timer for melatonin secretion to come on late in the evening. The eyes are doing all this and you say, well, why would the eyes do this? But we can't forget, and now this really takes us all the way back to the beginning, the eyes are central nervous system. The retinas are not part of your brain that's like connected to your brain, they are brain. There are two pieces of your brain outside your skull. In fact, they're the only pieces of your brain outside your skull. I always say, if there are other pieces of your brain outside your skull, you need surgical help. But we all have our eyes outside of our skull. They are pieces of brain that were designed to see objects, yes, but fundamentally they were designed us to set our internal state of arousal or calm. And that, I think, holds tremendous power for not just treatment of trauma or circadian biology, but one thing my lab is very actively pursuing is the extent to which vision can impact our internal states and how that might be leveraged for mental health and mental disease. This is so good. Well, I have such a big connection to make to this because uh, are you familiar with Dr. Bessel van der Kolk? Yeah. So I've, I've read The Body Keeps the Score. Okay, perfect. Yeah, we we had him on our podcast, and uh, I've actually had the honor of meeting him in person. And one of the one of the biggest things that I learned from him, I learned a lot about PTSD because he's a huge pioneer in that in that field. Um, and he was one of the first people to start doing brain imaging on individuals who could recall significant experiences, like one-time experiences, and he wanted to see what the brain would do when they had PTSD. And that was kind of the first time, at least that I know of where it was shown that people who have PTSD, even though they might not be in that situation at that time, if they recall it, their body literally goes back into the situation that they were in. And it could lead to something called an amygdala hijacking. So their, their fight or flight response kicks on and it shuts off other parts of their brain. That was such an important discovery. Another thing that you said was, you know, children, children, they, they passively learn a lot, you know, so even if uh, they're not paying attention, whatever's in the background, they might be able to learn from it. Um, it's been proven over and over the first like seven, eight years of our life, we really are developing our brain and individuals who have significant childhood trauma. Um, some of the things that you mentioned, uh, Dr. Bruce Perry is, is huge in this. Uh, he talks about how the neurodevelopment of young minds uh, can be halted when they are faced with more childhood trauma than someone who has a safe upbringing, you know? And it's just so interesting when we start looking at this from a neurodevelopmental standpoint and we start looking at, well, the, the type of environment that we create for, for the youth uh, and, the, and the globe and how, that's, how trauma affects our behavior, I guess, in, in the big picture. So I'm not an expert in this, but, you know, I, so I, I, I'm working on a book and I, I confess I've, I've gone and, and spent some time at trauma release um, centers. I'm just curious about what's out there. And, um, you know, breath work is being incorporated into a lot of trauma release. Uh, you know, one of the kind of hallmarks of addiction and trauma 
um, as well as depression, is lack of autonomic control. People waking up and not feeling well, feeling anxious, feeling exhausted. Um, you know, I actually, David Spiegel sent me a paper yesterday that I asked him to send me because I was very intrigued by this, that um, he mentioned in a conversation we had had that in about 70% of people who have uh, PTSD trauma um, have a kind of uh, hyper arousal of the autonomic system. They're just, okay. you know, they're, they're stressed. Um, they're, they're hy hyper excitable, this kind of thing. About 30% have a kind of, they're exhausted. And this is kind of burnout phenotype and this disengagement phenotype. And um, he described that there are two different brain networks that might get activated in one or the other. Again, this is his work, not, not my work. And I find that really interesting because if we circle back to our discussion about breath work, or real-time tools, then you might say, well, for somebody who's struggling with trauma, would they should they be doing something to kind of lift them out of that passive response, kind of like an activating type of breathing pattern, or should they be trying to calm themselves because they have the hyperarousal pattern? And I think that it's really getting into the realm of how do we create objective measures and treatments for what are arguably subjective experiences, right? Because no two traumas are alike, but ultimately you have to put some treatment into a package and into a form that people can, can adopt. And so I think that teaching autonomic control, because the name autonomic means automatic, but it's a misnomer. Teaching autonomic yeah. control to kids and to adults, whether or not they have trauma or not, I think is a fundamental skill. It's, it's, it's more important, in my opinion, than almost any other skill, like walking and talking. Are, are, but if you can learn to control your autonomic nervous system, a whole world of possibilities open up to you. Also, let's, let's step back for a second and just look. Most incarcerations, most violence, most unfortunate events, unless they are set by natural disaster, are the consequence of a failure to regulate one's state of mind. Agreed. So, you know, somebody failed to regulate their state. Now, occasionally you'll hear about crimes that are very deliberate, like sort of sociopathic, you know, intentional violence. And of course that happens and it's tragic. And, you know, we need to think about how to deal with that too. But, you know, crimes of passion, um, people being reactive, people saying the wrong thing, people, um, you know, doing the wrong thing that impacts them and other people in very destructive ways physical or otherwise, I mean, that's lack of autonomic control. And it it's because autonomic control ultimately is control over our behavior. And autonomic control is also control over per, our perception of time. A lot of times when people do something that they regret later, and they wonder, how did I do that? How did I say that? Now, this could be violence, or it could be suicide. It could be negative thinking, or it could be anything. But states of mania and states of depression and states of anxiety, they lend themselves to, to destructive behavior of different forms, of course, but destructive nonetheless. And learning autonomic control is, I I feel like that is the the issue for mental health. And, and we also touched on it has powerful uh, you know, roles in impacting physical health as well. 
So this is why I'm really devoting as much of my time and energy and educational formats and stuff, not just in neuroplasticity and sleep and things like that, but it's all anchored in this notion of autonomic control. And people need the tools. And if and if the we can understand the science, we can develop better tools. And I think there are tools out there, but the autonomic control tools that people use right now in widespread are stimulants and sedatives. You're and right. Those are not and those have an addictive component. So this is also valid for pain management. This is valid oh, yeah. for trauma. So we need, you know, I'm one laboratory, David's lab, of course, we've joined arms in this effort, which is wonderful. Um, there are other labs out there, but you know, we need more laboratories and clinicians working on these issues and bringing them to the clinic and bringing them to the general public. I couldn't agree more with you. Uh, just teaching neuroregulation to young individuals. One of the things I do with my peds population, and I love doing it when the parents are there, is uh, inspiring them by by teaching them how much control they actually have over over their life and how much their mindset matters and how much the more they educate themselves about their own bodies. I always say to each one of my patients, like you are your best doctor because you've lived in your body uh, longer as long as you you've lived, you know. And your your doctor's job is to be able to listen to you, you know. And um, I, I just couldn't agree more with this with this notion of you know teaching neuroregulation tools to individuals rather than just using external modalities. Like you know, a lot of people will drink alcohol if they're stressed out, or you know, even medications to a certain degree. Um, in the medical field, you'll see that we're using medications more than we should be. That's how I feel about it because I feel like there is a lack to how much we're actually teaching when it comes to these type of methods. And I, I feel like the earlier we teach people breathing methods, yoga, like these actual things that are proven, like yoga has actually been shown to be as effective as SSRIs, if not more effective in individuals with PTSD. And that's, that's basically movement. Because a lot of people who have significant childhood trauma, they have an adverse relationship with their own body. They don't feel, they might get disassociated and they might not feel like themselves in certain ways. Then using movement as, as a modality that allows you to re-foster that relationship, it kind of goes back to this Instagram post you just did yesterday. It was a really, really cool post on neuroplasticity where you said that if you immobilize, if you cast like a like your hand or something like that within 48 hours your brain will begin to lose neuronal connection to that specific limb yeah the representation of that limb um changes very fast and and transcolossal connections start to change fortunately it reverses when you uncast the arm um and then yeah i also described there's a so that was published in the journal neuron really nice study because there hadn't been a lot of studies in humans of looking at how rapid plasticity was occurring that's really fast 48 hours um both for loss and restoration the other one is um a study that was published in current biology um uh, about a month before showing you know there it's a rare disorder but it's a disorder um where it's a it's a limb dysphoria um yeah. where people feel as if a limb or appendage doesn't belong to their body and they they fantasize about amputating it. It's a, and it's very uncomfortable for them. But it's weird because it's this dissociative, like most people feel that their body is their body. But um, there's some interesting ideas about how um, mirror box treatments where people see, move the intact limb, say in a phantom limb situation, they can feel then the phantom limb moving um, because it's through the perceptual windows is kind of Ramachandran's original work. Um, but things of that sort 
feeling in our body and feeling good with it. You know, I, I'm not a yoga practitioner, but, um, I'm reading this massive tome, um, a systematic course in, um, ancient techniques of yoga. Like, like this thing is huge. I'm, I'm not reading all of it in detail, I confess, but I learned something early on, which is, I didn't know this, but yoga actually means, I think union or merge. It's really about trying to merge the mind and body. And the, the, the logic of yoga and these practices is that taking the body into these different positions and the transitions between those positions were sort of a journey through all these different autonomic states of peace and relaxation, stress and strain. And, you know, so it's a microcosm uh, of all the different things that life is, you know, throws at you. And I think there's a real brilliance in, in that logic. Um, the, the challenge of course, with yoga is that it's hard to bring to certain populations and it's hard to get people it's very hard to get people to adopt behaviors. So, you know, when I think of lines of attack on anything, it's going to be behavioral would be great. Like it'd be great if everyone slept well, saw sunlight in the morning, avoided bright light in the middle of the night, did a mile every morning or more, you know, did breath work, you know, so it's going to be behavioral, nutritional. Um, I do believe in certain forms of supplementation, drugs, uh, prescription drugs, and then brain machine interface right? Like what's the device that's going to TMS or is it going to be ultrasound or is it going to something to rewire the circuitry? And ultimately, you know, there's going to be a, multiple things in there that are going to combine. And I think medicine's job and science's job is like to say, look, it's 2020, like no more messing around. There is great value in some of the practices that are out there, but they are housed in nomenclature and in commercial packages that just don't make them applicable to the clinic. Meanwhile, yeah, let's keep researching drugs. Let's build brain machine interface. Let's, um, you know, think about how diet and supplementation can really support health. But I think the behavioral tools are vastly understudied and, and they're free. They're, so they're generally free. I mean, they're, they require some time, but they're generally free. And what I like about them is they're, is they're pre-installed. Exactly. So if we focus on tools that reflect the activity of neural circuits that are present in an animal and in humans, there's a beauty in that logic because we can just say, you know, nature, God, the universe, whatever your belief structure is, doesn't really matter. It's There's an elegance to placing these neurons and these hormones and these organs in all species. It says they were really designed for that purpose. And I think... Some of it is a communication barrier too. One of the reasons I do podcasts, I'm out there on Instagram because that's not what I get paid to do. Yeah. What I, but I do it because I feel like it's so crucial that we have these discussions. It's vital and hopefully they'll have an impact and hopefully people will run with them. As you know, in medicine and in science, we have this saying, which is watch one, do one, teach one. So my hope is always that people won't just watch, but they will do and that once they learn something and they like it, if they think it has value, that they will teach. And I don't, none of, you know, Mother Nature holds the patent on all this, right? I'm not, so there's no product, you know, there's no product code. Just watch one, do one, teach one. That's my, that's my wish for humanity when it comes to this stuff. I agree with you and I'll fight that good fight with you because the more and more we study uh, different aspects that we're passionate about. I am hopeful that we could tap into this nature that's already been within us, you know, uh, and the and that's highly underutilized in the clinical setting. I also think that in the future, it's going to be something like that that's going to revolutionize the way medicine's looked at. You say it best, being able to utilize what's already within us is is 
us using nature's beauty, you know? And no, I'm just a huge fan of that. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, as we close off on this segment, I really want to learn more about how you implement things into your routine. So how are you maximizing neuroplasticity in your life? How are you uh, just making your potential um, the most it can be so you could add to mankind's greatest achievement? So what are some things you could give our audience, some tips, anything like that? Sure. Um, so I, I'm just smiling because I, I think I feel uh, we're so aligned in in our our hopes and our and our and our efforts. And I think it's uh, I look forward to the opportunity to think about how we can join arms in that and bring others uh, on board. Um, so I was just I was just uh, reflecting on that. So thank you. But um, OK, so um, I uh, struggle at just about as much as anyone uh, to to implement things on a consistent basis. But there are a couple of things I've I, I been into um, what I like to do and what I don't like to do. So I love to exercise and train. I get it. I'm one of those, okay? So if I had my way, I would train more. I get frustrated that I can't recover as fast and I've never been good at recovering. I've never been quick to recover. But I, you know, I'm 45 now, I think I'm in, my goal is always to be in better shape than the year before, uh, mm. just to keep, you keep that. So a couple things I do, um, I'll just kind of do it across the day. When I wake up, um, first thing I do is I have a gratitude practice. Uh, I don't wake up feeling well. I wake up feeling overwhelmed, tired. I usually am focused on my reflexes to focus on what's not working or what's not awesome yeah. for me. It's just the way I wake up. Mm-hmm. I don't know why it's always been that way. I look forward to the day I can wake up and smile and be like, oh, life is beautiful. And my life is beautiful. I have a, a you know, so many gifts that I am appreciate for. So I, I deliberately introduce a gratitude practice. And the reason for that is thoughts are very hard to control. It's hard to suppress thoughts, but we can add thoughts deliberately. Just like I can pick up my glass of tea. I can say, you know what, I'm going to do a gratitude practice. So I do that in the form of thinking about something I'm really appreciative for these days with quarantine. It's really about having a place to live in. And I'm spending a lot of time with my dog who's in his final years now. He's a bulldog and I adore him and just constant. You might hear him snoring in the background. Um, uh, bulldog, only species besides humans that has a uh, genetically inherited diagnosable sleep disorder, sleep apnea. Oh, so there's yeah, a little factoid. So I, I do a brief grat- gratitude practice. It takes about a minute and then I'm up and I do um, I do about 25 deep breaths. I didn't know why I did it, but I have a hard time waking up and it helps me shift. Maybe it's this carbon dioxide offload that you mentioned that's really interesting because carbon dioxide accumulating in sleep. Um, then I caffeinate <laughs> and I'm a, and I personally am a big fan of, I drink mate, I drink tea. My father's Argentine as I might mentioned earlier, but I, I like it because it's not, for me, it's not as dehydrating. I drink water and I drink tea in the morning and I try and do some work, but I also try and get some sunlight in my eyes early in the day to wake up my circadian system and prepare myself for sleep 16 hours later, which, cause that morning light pulse sets a timer on that evening melatonin pulse vital behavior. Even when it's cloudy out, you can get photons to the eye. You can wake up your, your system. So that's a, a no, zero cost. Even if you're in Scandinavia, sun goes up in the Medetta winter, sun goes up, sun goes down. See the morning sunlight. You don't have to see the sun rise, but try and see the sun within an hour waking or so. I don't tend to eat right away. Sometimes if I'm really hungry, I might, but I tend to push my eating window out. I, you know, I used to be 
um, on the, you know, I was an adjunct at Salk when I was a professor at uh, UC San Diego. And this is when Sachin Panda was making all these great discoveries about circadian eating and intermittent fasting. I think there's really clear evidence now that having a period of no calorie ingestion, being a little bit hungry, these kind of hormetic states can trigger um, autophagy and some some aspects of cellular biology that are good for longevity. You know, and um, check out the work from David Sinclair. Um, his book Lifespan is awesome, and and the work that he's done. Of course, he's the world's expert on all that, um, both supplementation and behavioral practices. So I tend to work for a couple hours, and then and I'll be honest, I, I lock my phone in a safe to do that because otherwise I don't get any work done because I'm human. That's great. And and I find every reason to go get that phone out of the safe. Like, oh, I need a code or a you know push notification. It's terrible, but I just try and get that work done. Then um, around lunchtime, I do my exercise. I like to exercise a little bit later in the morning. I can sometimes force myself, but for me, I like to work out for 45 minutes or 50 minutes, never more than an hour, unless once a week I, I go on a long run. But um, and then in the after, then believe it or not, after then I eat lunch and then I take a I take a 20 minute um, meditation nap. I do this yoga nidra practice. Um, I'll be happy to send you the script. And I lean into work again for the afternoon. Um, as nighttime approaches, I try and reduce the amount of lights in my world um, so that I can sleep better. And, you know, and and there's some other things I do too. You know, I, I, I tend to eat pretty clean. I try and eat pretty clean. Although the other night I really wanted a pizza, so I ate the whole pizza. Um, I do that stuff, you know, it happens, it happened. And I, don't, I think every once in a while, it's not, not such a big deal um, for me. I'm not diabetic, so I, I can, fortunately I can get away with that. Um, and. You know, I don't, I am a fan of supplementation. I, I don't, I don't even think about it as supplementation. I, I think it's very hard to get enough of the healthy omega threes enough to get uh, fermented food. So I, I believe when I look, when I look at the literature for me, um, and I'm not making recommendations here, but for me, I, I take a pretty high potency fish oil capsule or in liquid form every day because the double blind placebo control studies show that it, it's a pretty effective antidepressant um, for certain people. And I feel better when I do it and I take probiotic, but you gotta keep, I noticed for me, I have to keep the level of probiotic low because there is a brain fog associated with too much probiotic. It can be overdone. And I take magnesium before sleep. I take magnesium three and eight, um, T-H-R-E-O-N-A-T-E. I take 366 milligrams of that and I take 200 milligrams or 400 milligrams of theanine, T-H-E-A-N-I-N-E. These are basically they promote the the production and release of GABA. They help me shut off my brain and fall asleep and I sleep really deeply on them. They also make it a little harder to wake up in the morning, but they work for me and that's what I do and I'm not pushing supplements, but I don't, I believe in supplementation, but I don't have to take prescription pills to sleep, fortunately. And I do my best to try and keep a positive mindset, but I also know that if I have spikes in stress or if I get resentful that I just need to work through that. and that's not gonna crash my immune system or or give me dementia, you know, if I'm gonna be, I'm gonna roll with the bumps. And so I try and keep a healthy mindset, which includes having a few unhealthy states that are uncomfortable states now and again. I think it's really unhealthy to think about being happy all the time. And I had a couple of days this week where I was really frustrated about a certain problem I was trying to get my head around. And yesterday the kind of breakthrough came and I was laughing at myself because I was like, wow, it's really getting negative. I was thinking, is my physiology crashing? Am I depressed? I was like, no, it was just literally, it's okay to be frustrated and angry for a couple of days, I, you know, and it t turned into um, a period of great productivity. So 
I try and keep a, a sense of levity. And I think that's maybe the thing I'll just close with. There is no hack that can get you around all this. It's an aggregate of tools that I apply. And the one that I, that I think is the most helpful to me, having now been 45, pretty challenging career, but going well, lost a lot of people due to death and disease. Unfortunately, it's just life. A lot of babies born as well. That's just life, which is wonderful. But humor and levity and not taking myself too seriously, I think is probably the best thing I can do. You know, at the end of the day, that's something we can all do, like not take ourselves too seriously or maybe anything that seriously for that matter. Just keep a sense of, you know, I am absolutely hell bent on getting tools out, science out into the world. And I take that very seriously, but it's amazing what levity and humor can do for us in resetting our state and our ability to lean back into life. So there, I probably gave you more information you wanted, but, um, oh. that's, that, that's what I do. I just try and laugh at myself as many times a day as possible, but then I lean back into effort as hard as I absolutely can. Amen to that. You know, the, one of the things that I learned from you and I've been applying, uh, it's been at least a month now is just getting sunlight in the mornings. Um, especially, you know, being in the hospital, uh, 12 hours, yeah. usually from uh, like 5 a.m. to like 7 p.m. Um, it, it's hard to get sunlight. So I try at least 10 to 20 minutes. Like just I just stand in front of the sun. And I did actually I learned that, that from you, too, where even if it's a cloudy day, there's so many photons out that you should still be outside trying to do that. And then near the end of the night, my wife and I will go on a walk so we could get mm -hmm. kind of sunlight at the beginning of the day, sunlight at the end of the day. Um, there's Beautiful. probably no greater regulator than the one thing that's guaranteed in our solar system, which is the sun. It's clockwork every day. I have realized that that helps my rhythms. Um, and so I took that. That was one of the biggest things I've taken from you. Uh, and there's so many other things to take. So I, I can't even can't even thank you enough for all the work that you do. Um, oh, well, I'm delighted that you're incorporating the practices because in the end, it's about the behaviors. And that's wonderful. I, I will quote a friend of mine. He's a physician. Um, and he has a wonderful statement, you know, uh, when it comes to adopting practices or, or whether or not it's prescription drugs or nutrition, you know, he says, look, better living through chemistry still requires better living. So there is no, there's no pill or potion, right? You, in the end, it's the things that we do. And of course, medication can have tremendous value. I am not anti-pharma. I'd be a hypocrite yeah. if I said I was because I, you know, I believe in the power of medicine and that is one axis of medicine, but better living through chemistry still requires better living and we can all afford to live a little better. Amen to that, man. So we always end our podcast uh, with one question and that's the, the first time you heard the word medspiration, what did it invoke and what did you think of? Oh, wow. Um, let me recall for a second. Um, well, because of the logo, I yeah. think it evoked a hope that it was that your Instagram was going to, cause that's where I saw it first was going to be grounded in, um, some fact-based evidence-based uh, <laughs> stuff because I love social media for certain purposes, but it is a, a, a wild west landscape where kind of you see all sorts of crazy stuff. So it was such a, a pleasant surprise um, to know that it was a site that, you know, you're a physician and you're grounding things in the exploration of facts and, and rigor. And, um, 
and then also I have to say the visuals are beautiful. Like there's some beautiful scans in there and you know, this is the geek biologist in me, but if you have an appreciation for the body and the mind to see those beautiful images is really uh, always wonderful. So I think it was a sense of relief. It was a sense of relief. Like, phew, I'm not, I'm not alone. I'm not alone. Well, that's how, that's how I feel after having this conversation with you. Honestly, I was so excited to just get in touch because uh, in many ways, we have a very similar mission. And I, I plan on keeping in touch after this. Um, and you know, I'm do. hopeful that you know, we can add to mankind's greatest achievements through science and, and do that with, with a, from a creative and artsy uh, approach. You know? So uh, I am grateful for you. Please continue to do what you do. Uh, I don't think you know how many lives that you're influencing, but it's incredible what you're doing. It's just I'm grateful for these platforms like Instagram. You know? um, so please just keep going and we'll do um, everything we can to make sure that we can uh, help you in any way that we can. Um, so how can people reach you? How can they find you? What are some ways? Um, thank you. And, um, back at you. I, I would love to, to again, figure out how we can support each other in this effort of public education about medicine and science. So, um, Huberman lab on Instagram. So H U B E R M A N L A B. Uh, that's my Instagram handle. I teach neuroscience there. Um, you could search my name in, uh, you know, uh, YouTube for YouTube videos if that's uh, more your thing or podcasts. Um, HubermanLab.com is my lab's webpage, and there I provide some press links that are more scientific in nature um, than the kind of Instagram stuff, as well as downloadable PDFs of all our publications, both reviews and primary research articles. So if people want to get down into the weeds and say, okay, like what, what exactly is the research and what's being done? Um, in addition, I do, David and I, I should say, excuse me, uh, are running studies that are in the, with the general public. So we do recruit subjects for laboratory experiments. Um, right now, the current breathwork study is closed for recruitment, but there will be more. And so if people want to reach me, best thing would be sending me a direct message on Instagram, not my email, but on, on Instagram, there's a direct yeah. message button there. Um, and just put breathwork study or breathing study and your email and then i can reach back when we open recruitment again um this involves we pay you if you get uh, now we can't recruit everybody there's some criteria that i can't reveal here because i everyone's got to fill out the questionnaire but if you match the criteria for that particular study we send you um usually some valuable tech that you can keep for the duration of the, stu uh, the study and beyond um you get to keep that um and we pay people and you'd be part of the scientific process and you get to learn some interesting things about stress and your sleep patterns and things of that sort. So um, humanlab.com, at hubermanlab on Instagram. And you know, I, I do my best to answer people's questions uh, through the Instagram. Yeah, you're, you're good at that because I was able to connect with you through direct message and kind of coordinate uh, more, more so than email. But uh, Dr. Huberman, I'm so thankful for you, man. Thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. We are likely to have you on this podcast again because uh, I feel like I could talk to you for like years. <laughs> well, I'd be delighted to come back anytime again. I, and again, uh, I want to say thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to connect with your listeners and, and with you. There you have it, folks. I hope you guys left this one feeling med-spired. If you learned something new or if you genuinely enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and rate it five stars. Medspiration is a 501c3 nonprofit charity organization. The more you help us grow, the more people we're able to help. 
Let's make a commitment together, guys, and attempt to be the best possible version of ourselves, no matter what life throws at us, mentally, physically, and spiritually. As always, you know what time it is. It's time to get out there and to do something med-spiring. <laughs> <laughs>